GradCast, official radio show on podcasts of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Nicole Poznov, and I'm here with Laura Munoz. And today we are, our guest today is, introduce yourself. Oh, hello. I'm Michael Fagan. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Um, so I guess start us off by telling us what your program is and tell us a little bit more about your research since that's, since that's what our podcast is all about. Sure thing. So um, any, any regular listeners might remember me from last year. Uh, I am a, uh, I was a master's student at uh, Westman's history department and I am now a first year PhD student, uh, same department. And uh, you know, my research has uh, not really changed too much since last year. I'm still uh, very much focused on studying Canadian and American telegraph operators. But um, today, I'm here to talk about uh, less about like a labor issue or labor history and more about uh, the history of telephone and telegraph networks in Canadian and American cities. Awesome. So would you be able to give us a quick summary of what you discussed about in the last time you were on uh, GradCast? Yeah, so just real quick, if anyone's interested, last time I discussed the uh, labor of Canadian telegraph operators, uh, roughly from 1880s to 1910s. And my focus was primarily on labor conditions, uh, working conditions, uh, relationships to technology, the demographics of these people. And my kind of main argument was that they kind of represented somewhat of a white collar working class, uh, a group of what we would consider maybe like modern office workers who had just a very precarious kind of employment. Um, I talked about a bit of, about uh, their enrol enrollment in national or international strikes in the 1880s and 1900s and uh, how those events illustrated their precarious employment. Great. And then, so how does your work now change in comparison to that? Yeah, so uh, the work that I'm talking about uh, today, which originally started off as just kind of like a one-off thing that I did for like a course and has kind of um, spread into a kind of a bigger interest that I'm, well, before COVID, I was going to do a presentation for the CHA uh, at Western on, on this. So this yeah. is a great opportunity to still talk about it with someone of a Western audience. Um, but um, I'm, I'm still very focused on telegraph operators. So this has been a, a very interesting side project for me as well is uh, so rather than focus on like, you know, the people working in these networks, I'm way more focused uh, in this project on the uh, physical aspect of these telegraph and telephone networks. And by that, I mean, I'm basically writing and talking about like telephone poles and wires. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was gonna say, so I come from a science background and every time we said telegraph operations mm -hmm. and all that big words, I was not exactly sure what you meant. So telephone mm -hmm. pole, telephone wires and poles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that that's basically the, the focus of, or was the focus of my CHA talk and is kind of the focus uh, I'm bringing today. Wow, how did you get into that kind of research? Uh, it's a good question because I think when people talk about, or when I tell people that I, I, I spent like a term studying like the history of telephone poles or wires, they look at me like, um, like I have two heads, <laughs> um, or they seem shocked that there's even a history of that. Um, 
There's a history for everything. <laughs> yeah, there's, you can find a history of everything. Yeah. I think what turned me on to it initially was um, my advisor at uh, Western University, uh, Rob McDougall, his book, The People's Network. Um, I, it's not a specific chapter, but it's, it's certainly in the book. And if you go into the index, you can easily find this uh, section. He has uh, quite a few pages talking about the history of telephone poles and networks. And that was what originally turned me on to the idea of uh, studying uh, that topic for an urban environmental context. Wow. Is there a particular part about telephone poles and networks and like, that really, really intrigued you, like from that book, or just mm -hmm. general the history of it all and how it all start began. Yeah, so um, I think the the one thing that made me at least connect the history of the telephone poles to like my environmental history course that I was in at the time was uh, this poem by John Updike called "Telephone Poles," mm -hmm. and you know, in this poem, I mean, like you know, John Updike has beautiful prose. But in this poem, he basically likens uh, telephone poles to trees uh, by talking about like, uh, you know, actually, I think I have it right here. Uh, so, you know, he talks about how like they've been with us a long time. They will outlast the elms. Uh, they blend along small town streets like a race of giants that have faded into mere mythology. And he just has like these beautiful prose about how like these poles are like evergreens that are never green. Uh, that they never shed leaves and that they cast negligible shade, but they still have birds twittering on them. And wow. it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful poem. I strongly recommend anyone who can to look it up. Um, and to me, this was like a huge inspiration for uh, my understanding of telephone poles as part of an urban environment, where even though you know, if you're in like a big city downtown and you don't have like a lot of beautiful trees or parks, especially in the late 19th century, in a way, I felt like these poles almost kind of operated uh, in a similar vein as, as these as trees would for a city. They should, just, they should just decorate these telephone poles like trees. They should start painting them like, like a root and like some... <laughs> Draw some, like, I don't know, have some fake leaves on there or something. So it's it's actually interesting that you bring that up because I actually talk about that in the book. Um, hey. or, well, not in the book, the, uh, the article that I wrote. Um, and I, I ended up talking about how, like, in the, 19th, in the late 19th century, people hated these things. I mean, it's hard, for, I think, for us to imagine now people, like, really despising telephone poles. <laughs> uh, but when these were put up on city streets, people hated it. People wanted them to be taken down. They called them eyesores, assaults on the senses, all these kinds of terrible language. Um, and a lot of people tried to come up with like ways of making them more tolerable. And mm -hmm. that included like putting them into your backyard so you, no one had to see them. Uh, it included even recommendations to paint them, like <laughs> just to make them look prettier. Yeah. Uh, some people even recommended allowing, purposely allowing vines to grow on them so that they could actually produce shade and like serve a purpose, an aesthetic purpose, but do something. Yeah. So what, which part, which part of the poles are you interested in? Like in the process of making them or the process of installing or like their relationship with the community? Like which specific part, uh, are you interested in? So, so that's a good question. I'm really interested in all of it. 
every bit of it. So in, in my own article, I even talked about how I talked about like the, the construction of poles. I talked about the erection, like how do you set them up? How do you put them on the city street? Um, and even how you move it, right? Because I, right. I guess it's not an easy thing to do, right? Like you have... Yeah, how you move it as well. Um, there's like Bell Telephone, for example, has incredibly detailed um, systematic regulations for like how telephone poles were supposed to look, how they were supposed to be manufactured, um, like down to even saying like what kind of trees should and should not be used. I think Bell Telephone specifically regulated that like chestnut and elm trees were like the only ones that could be used. Uh, they regulated height, how many cross arms, you know, the, the T part of a pole. Wow. How many of those uh, could you have? How long did they have to be? How spaced apart should they be? Um, insulators, which are kind of like the glass things that sit on the arms and the wire wraps around them. Man, I never even thought there's about, there was that much thought to go into putting up a telephone pole. Th that's kind of, I mean, like part of doing histories like like these is to show that like, everything in your every day really uh that seems like an invisible part of your day and kind of seems natural or almost forgotten is actually a site of like hundreds if not thousands of little episodes and struggles that made that thing look the way it is and telephone poles is is just the one that i, I pulled out um of course uh you know there's there's tons of different struggles that go over all these decisions too yeah, so I was wondering, uh, like, if you have any research on the impact of these poles, like, for wildlife, for example. I don't know if birds will go electrocuted or, like, squirrels, mm -hmm. or how they interact with these kind of, like, new things that they haven't seen before. Have you? Yeah, so, so um, interaction with wildlife. That was something I was actually really interested in looking into. Um, I basically, I, unfortunately, I had to cut it from from my own paper just because it was getting unwieldy uh but i i am really interested in like their relationship to uh nature so instead of talking about wildlife which had kind of a sporadic um which for me had, had i had kind of sporadic evidence for i really zeroed in on the relationship with uh plants and with uh the weather so again still nature um, and one of the things I, I focused in on was, uh, telephone poles relationships to street trees. So like if you're in a city or a town and you see those like rows of trees planted along boulevards, um, this is an excellent historian, uh, Joanne Dean, who has written a lot about the topic of street trees. Uh, well, it's like, if you think about it, if the tree is standing too close to a tel telephone pole and it starts growing into the telephone pole, it's probably the tree that's going to get chopped down, where not the telephone pole that's going to be moved, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that is an interesting thing to look at. Mm -hmm. that, was the, that was the primary concern. And in most of my uh, research, where I was looking at the relationship between these kinds of street trees and poles, I found that there was actually a surprising amount of uh, bylaws and regulations passed by states and cities to uh, limit companies from actually tampering with street trees. Uh, for example, um, uh, I believe Kingston 
uh, issued bylaws where like you couldn't lop or trim any street tree. If you were like a lineman, you had to go through this, basically the municipal government to do it. Um, and again, all these are basically regulations to like manage the relationship between plants on streets and poles since they're occupying very similar spaces. They, came in, yeah, they come, they come I, into conflict uh, frequently. I think that was actually a case in London too, where they wanted to build that uh, fast bus lane for, and like they needed to expand the road and get rid of a bunch of trees. And there were so many petitions I remember. So I'm not sure if that, that might be a bylaw in London as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, right now I'm looking at a Michigan law that says uh, telephone companies could not injure, deface, tear, cut down or destroy any tree or shrub planted along the margin of any road in the state that has been allowed to grow for shade or ornament. So there you go. Uh, there are many examples of, of towns, cities, and states that issue bylaws and rules and regulations that uh, manage that relationship between companies, cities, plants, and of course, poles. Yeah, then people start complaining that they get to shitty like internet or not internet, sorry, phone service. Then that's like, well, like it's not the the company's fault. It's not because we couldn't put more tower or more poles up and stuff. Mm -hmm. There was um I had mentioned the Kingston bylaw and uh, the conflict between service and you know beautiful city streets or just a managed relationship between technology and nature um, resulted would result in some issues for companies. So Kingston's a good example where. Uh, in Kingston, uh, the bylaws stated that uh, poles could not interfere with traffic. Uh, they could not exceed 40 feet in height. Some of these poles stretched to about 90 feet tall. Wow. Uh, so they, they couldn't be any more than 40 feet. Uh, they regulated what kind of wood they had to be made of, of course. Uh, oh, here we go wires must be at least 20 feet above the street. So you can imagine there were companies who were like dangling wires only 10 feet above the street. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, no pole could be erected outside of a door. So again, you can imagine this happened. So some, and I actually have a case from uh, Quebec City where a company just put a pole right outside of a, a newspaper office's door uh, and, and the door couldn't open. So I was wondering, what, what are these poles made of? Like, what's the raw material? Where does it come mm -hmm. from? Because probably it has like an impact on the environment as well. And because you're interested in that, maybe it should be nice to know. Yes. So the, there are a few trees in which um, companies or cities regulated. Um, the most common are, you know, chestnut trees, um, cedar trees. Cedars grow very straight and narrow. Uh, same with pine. Like the trees that you could get that you could like require the least amount of work to make a functional pole are ideal. Um, and that was actually one thing again I wanted to get into even more detail and, and maybe I, I, I will if I, if I work on this more is uh, to trace the life of a pole almost down to like it step by step. And I, and I do that somewhat in my article, but I think you could do it even more by actually finding the exact forest in which logging occurred, um, what company was the loggers uh, working for, 
and uh, you know where do the where are they processed? Uh, I'm trying to think of like a I actually found like a primary source that was an advertisement in like a Canadian journal uh, selling pre-cut poles, uh, and it would basically just tell you like oh it's this kind of uh, lumber and we got it here, but not much detail past that. And you mentioned that, so you said you're looking at Canadian and American mm. history of these poles. Do you notice that there's an, a big difference between Canada and the States when it comes to telephone poles? Not particularly. In fact, I think a lot of my examples between Canada and the United States mirror each other more than you see any difference. I think the only major difference might be in American cities, which are larger and more densely populated. The issue is even greater. Um, like New York City is the obvious example. Um, like the the sky between cities or between blocks, uh, city blocks is just blanketed with wires. Yeah. And what do you think about like North America versus like Europe or something like that? Would there be a huge difference there? So actually, yeah, there there is uh, somewhat. Um, one of the major complaints that um, American city residents had in the 1880s was, uh, you know, telegraph companies and telephone companies were erecting all these wires and poles in cities still, um, even though in some cases they had been regulated not to. Uh, and one of the big excuses that companies would often give is that there is no alternative. You know, you can't put them underground, the technology's not there. And again, critics would just point to Europe and say, well, they're doing it there. <laughs> they're putting all these things underground there, so why can't we do it here? <laughs> and do you think that might be in the in North America's future, like to have that some more underground, more covered, similar to European mm -hmm. style? Well, most, uh, in this day and age, most major cities like, you know, Toronto, or New York, or Chicago, uh, downtown city centers all have wires underground, completely. Uh, you, it's the same reason why, I mean, like, if you look at actual footage or photographs of, you know, New York City in, like, 1880s, uh, it's, it's almost unrecognizably dense with poles and wires, whereas, uh, you know, nowadays, it's all nice and clean. I think uh, in, say, smaller towns or smaller cities or in, like, suburbs, uh, I, that's where you recognize, you know, the classic poles and wires lining streets and things like that. That's interesting because that was my following question because uh, I think it's like what happened with these poles like because you will imagine with the internet and everything <laughs> with cell phones you wouldn't need those poles anymore but I, I don't know. Yeah so uh, you know say back in the late 19th century um, technology was obviously more limited uh, but even technologies that we think of, like, you know, a telephone, uh, was more limited in even more ways then than it is now, of course. Uh, back in, like, say, the 1880s, the telephone was largely an urban communication device. Like, long-distance calling was a, a, a dream still at that point. You couldn't call from, like, city to city or state to state. God forbid, state to state. Um, <laughs> so... The, the main reason was that like the signal strength wasn't strong enough for carrying voice over in many cases the the bare wires that they were using so you needed some way of, of amplifying it which was just 
far off at that point. So that meant that every wire that you see in like a city skyline from like the 1880s is in actuality a single telephone subscriber. So rather than uh, cable it, which is what you would do now, I mean, most wires now that you see hanging from poles are cabled, meaning there's more than one wire in that. Uh, back then it was just wires, <laughs> nothing was being cabled. Um, yeah, so it's just from one house to the next house and that's, that was it. Like yeah. you can really split it off to multiple houses yeah. on that street. Basically your wire came out of your house and it uh, dangled along a pole until you went to a, a telephone exchange where basically they all converged on. And then, you know, your signal was shot out of that exchange to someone else's house. So um, if you wanted to be able to talk to anyone on the phone, you had to have a wire coming into your house. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, sorry, it's a super question. Oh, oh no, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say, of course, like a lot of these. I mean, I'm, I'm saying telephone pole, like all they carry is telephone wires, but they're carrying often more than just that. So they could be carrying, obviously, telephone, telegraph. Um, your fire alarm is uh, a wire that's that's on the on the pole. Your electricity, of course, like. Um, so there's, and some of them are also, of course, carrying like electric tram lines as well. So again, you have this huge mess of, of wire that's basically allowing your city to communicate and move and just be safe and, and, and function. But yeah. rightfully so, most of the residents of these cities thought they were complete eyesores. Wow. So it's basically like to be a big major city, you had to have this sky of wires <laughs> mm -hmm. basically yeah for in north america it was just it was just a common thing yeah wow it's crazy be, i would love to see some of these pictures like the evolution through time like how it all works yeah um and i mean like i'm i'm referencing images a lot in my in my speech and it's simply because like in my own art in my own writing it's hard to communicate the extent of this like density without using images. So in my own writing, I, I make regular use of images. I think I had maybe like 10 images in the, in the whole article, which for me is a lot. <laughs> for, for most history articles, that's a lot. So to get a little bit more about what it's like to be a historian, because coming from a science background, I don't really know exactly how, what you do in your day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. or how you even start a thesis project as a student doing a PhD in history. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so in, in this in this current project, or I guess it's a little older of a project now, but uh, in the project that I'm talking about now, um, the, the process involved a lot of uh, combing through newspapers. <laughs> That's primarily what I did. Uh, I wanted to find out like what were people's opinions and reactions and interactions with polls and companies and the city governments uh, regarding polls. So I would just open up these huge newspaper databases like the New York Times, uh, the Toronto Globe, or, or even like larger connections that were of a bunch of smaller Canadian or American newspapers. And I would just, I would just, you know, keyword search telephone poll and just see what came up. Now, a lot of what you're going to get is uh, 
if you do that, you'll find hundreds of articles of people complaining about telephone poles or telegraph poles and weird political uh, events about them. But you'll also find things that like, you know, maybe you didn't expect. I found uh, when I was searching American newspaper databases, uh, there were probably about three themes for every telephone uh, poll story. One was people complaining <laughs> uh, in like a political form, like a, like a court case or just, you know, on the streets, editorial style. Uh, the second was uh, car accidents. So people uh, crashing into them, either in, in their horse and carriage or automobiles. And then <laughs> the third complaining. one, it's still kind of a complaint. <laughs> and the third one, uh, I, and this is, this is exclusive for American newspapers, was uh, lynchings. So the third one was uh, apparently in, in many southern cities, uh, people use telephone poles and telegraph poles for lynchings. So those are about the three themes that I came across in my own research. And I think, honestly, any of those would make a, an amazing article in, in themselves. I just chose to focus on mostly number one. People yeah. <laughs> There's way more data, I feel like, coming from that mm -hmm. side. <laughs> so I guess that's mostly then reading. Do you, inter do you have to talk to anybody? Like, do you uh, do any interviews with people that are older people that have lived through times when these polls are around more? So um, if you uh, are, work, I, I know I have plenty of colleagues who work with say like Cold War history or, or more recent history. And for them, the process of going through and interviewing people uh, is something they do. Um, you know, talking to like an ethics commission. Uh, I, I have never talked to an ethics commission or interviewed mm -hmm. anyone from my historical work. Uh, but I, from what I understand, that process seems very uh, illuminating, and I've read lots of historical studies that have done it. And uh, in fact, I, I talked with one uh, professor who wrote an article on uh, telegraph operators in Canada, and uh, she conducted interviews uh, for it. Uh, I believe they were probably working in like the 50s or the 40s at that point. Um, so a little outside my window of research, but still an amazing source if you could get something from it if you can get some interesting ideas but yeah. that's very interesting i was wondering like this is like a very interesting topic that i've never thought about so i was wondering what's the audience that you have in mind when you're doing this research or you just do it because you're curious about it or how do you like show more people like these kind of things that could be super interesting but we just never ask ourselves yeah so Audience is always a tricky question whenever you're working in like an academic context. Um, obviously, like right now, uh, when, whenever I'm on Gradcast or whenever I'm at like a really general kind of conference, I'm always very conscious to like switch my language to be more general, like less um, less faculty specific. <laughs> I guess is, is as it's often uh, often said. And instead be, uh, you know, we, we have a whole program in our history department called public history, which is, uh, in addition to all the other amazing things it does, it's also very much focused on like trying to make academic history presentable to like public everyday people and mm -hmm. to allow everyday people to have input into uh, academic spaces. 
So uh, I, I would say uh, my biggest change is, is cutting down on jargon and just trying to talk to people about something that I think is really interesting and what interests me about it and to try and get other people as interested about it as well. I'm really glad you were able to tell us about this. This is, again, something I never considered, like Laura said, but I just, it's so cool that there's just so much to learn about it. Uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody wants to learn more about your research or um, get in touch with you, is there any social media you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, you can uh, contact me or find my stuff on Twitter uh, at Mr. Fagan, um, M-R-F-E-A-G-I-N. You can find me there. Uh, and I believe I, I have a work that was published on uh, Niche. You can, you can find it on my Twitter, but you can also uh, go through Niche. It's an excellent website. Um, and uh, it's a Canadian environmental history uh, website. And uh, a part of my article was recently, well, a year ago, uh, published in there. And I believe it may be published in a greater extent sometime this year. So keep an eye out. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. Also, good. I know you're doing your comps exam soon. Good luck with that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll have your fingers crossed for you. There's lots of reading to be done for you there. But this is it for us. This has been GradCast, official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Nicole Poznov, and then my co-host is... Laura Muñoz. And we were speaking today with Michael. Um, so this was an episode also produced by Laura. Thank you so much, Laura, for hosting and producing. Uh, if you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact,